Uh, we're on a four, week four of six-week series um, called Worship. Um, is it really that important of a series? Oh, worship? Is it really that important? Uh, I'm making the argument uh, during these six weeks that uh, worship is just about the best thing a human being can actually do. Is it important? Is it extremely important? And we will find life in worship, we'll find peace, we'll find rest, we'll find everything we need as a human being if we are good worshipers. So let's look at this week four. Number one, we are people who crave um, relief. Now this is all across the board. What do you mean by crave relief? We are people that often feel like our lives are spinning out of control and you wish that it can just stop. You wish that you could just separate from it. You're wishing that you can control it as our lives are swimming out of control and our cry is just give me relief. We feel like uh, we are messed up craving for relief. I messed up. Is there something I got to do? There's something that should be done and it is hanging on to us. I feel worthless. I feel like it's all up to me. I feel unlovable. And if I could just be loved, then I can be able to find that relief that I'm desperately crying for in my soul. I feel like I don't have enough faith, and then I walk into church, and, and then I feel twice as much that I don't have enough faith, and I just want the relief to know, am I good enough, or do I have enough faith um, that God would accept me? I feel like I have messed up, and if people knew my past and knew my history, that uh, they would want to have nothing to do with me. My past continues to haunt me, and I almost want relief from my past. We have people that, all of us across the board, we do not feel worthy. In a sense of not feeling worthy, we're just desperate for that relief. Things in our mind, we say, I hope no one ever discovers the truth about me, because if people did, they would want nothing to do with me. I feel disqualified. I feel like I'm a fraud. If people knew what I have done, rejection would be on my way. Now, this is just all across the board. This is everybody starving for absolutely relief. Last night I came home from preaching and my wife was watching a documentary on Princess Diana. And sure enough, I sat down and I watched that documentary as well and went to bed at midnight. (laughs) It was a little long documentary. But all the way through the entire documentary, remember she's the princess. The princess has everything. All the way through was her desperate need for relief. Constant comments as people saw my face on camera, but nobody saw my heart on camera. I was hurting. I was struggling. How could she be struggling? We can struggle because we are common people, but she can't struggle because she's a princess. But yet she is starving for relief, the two-hour documentary was about. Watch the news last week. What did you see? All over the news, Kate Spade, a designer, committed suicide. Also, Anthony Bourdain, as well, committed suicide. Famous chef. These people have it all. And as these people have it all, it starts to, we start to ask questions when we see this incident, these incidents on the news. Some of the questions that we'll ask is like, why would somebody who have it all be in such despair? Why would somebody who have it all be to the point that they're willing to get rid of their life because of the despair that they are in. Now, as the news asks these questions, they do try to answer it, um, answer the questions as well. What is with people's emotions that are so heavy and so strong that they'd be able to take the very end of everything that they are, which is their life? 
It asks the question, is, are they thinking that their life could be better on the other side? Are they thinking that they might find relief if suicide takes place? So it brings a lot of questions in all of our minds as people starving for relief. One of the um, stirs off the, news, off the news of Kate Spade's suicide was a, um, kind of a, a comment from Jim Carrey, and it was a whole other article that, uh, that I read. It was very interesting. Jim Carrey, comedian, uh, what did he say? He said that, I am a person that has found it all and have everything a human being would ever want, and I understand completely it is not making me happy, and it is not giving me joy, and it is not giving me the relief that I so desperately desire for. So we ask the question, is there any place that we can find relief? We're human beings. Is there any source that we can go to to find complete relief? Is there any source that we can hang on to as the source of relief? I want to read a story about a woman who was oppressed, depressed, outcasted, a woman that needed relief. And as you see the story, you'll be able to see that she desperately needed relief. But inside the story, she finds it. What made her find it? What did she find that gave her the relief? Let's read the story found in John chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who was baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his sons to Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tried, as he was from, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and if it was that asked if and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well to drink from himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to be thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you are with right now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples returned and there were surprised to find Jesus talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to, say, to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Just break the story down a little bit. Number two, the Samaritan woman was an outcast. Number one, she was a Samaritan. She was not a Jew. Samaritan and Jews did not get along all the way from the divided kingdom. You had the 12 tribes of Israel, and Judah went to the south, and the rest of the 11 tribes of Israel went up to the north, known as Samaria. Those in Samaria, they believed in the Pentateuch, meaning they believed in the book Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they didn't believe that David carried the line of the Messiah who was coming. So they rejected that. What uh, those who carried the line of David, the Judah, what they hung on to is they hung on to the city of Jerusalem, and that's where they worshipped. What uh, um, the Samaritans did is they did not worship in Jerusalem. They worshipped God on the Mount of Gerizim. And so there was a little separation, that, a little separation, it was a huge separation that took place. And you also see wars take place through the hundreds of years, through, their, um, through that, the conflict that was there. Number B, she was, uh, she was also a lady. Um, during this culture and in this era and in this time, women weren't um, necessarily looked um, at as high with esteem. Um, men were kind of the dominant figures during this time. And you definitely don't just walk up to a lady that you do not know and just have a conversation with her. So she was a woman in, that, in this time, this area, put her down even lower. She also had a reputation. In the story, we see that she had uh, five husbands. We know that everybody talks. We know that the town knows that she's got five husbands. She's, could say, immoral. She's unclean. She was an outcast in many people's eyes. She was also alone. It says in the passage that she came at the sixth hour. Now, if you look at uh, the Jerusalem calendar, um, you will see that you start counting the hours after the sunrise. 
So it's six hours after the sunrise, she was there at noon. Being there at noon means that you're there in the heat of the day. Well, she was there in the heat of the day. Nobody draws water in the heat of the day. They always wait until evening. She was there in the heat of the day, and she was there alone. So let's look at the whole day. She's there at noon at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. There's going to be a whole bunch of ladies that are going to come to this well. And when they come, they're going to draw water. All these ladies are going to pull water, and then they're going to head back home. She was not with them. She was there by herself. Those ladies accept her. It's obvious that she was an outcast in her world. Number three, let's look at the Samaritan lady in another aspect. The Samaritan woman was thirsty. Thirsty to be seen. We see that. He says, are you greater than Jacob who gave us as well? She wanted to know who Jesus was because if she found out who Jesus was, she goes, do you, do you see me? Are you even something greater? Thirsty to be right with God. Give me living water. I want eternal life. You can see the hunger that's in her. Thirsty to be whole. I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I cannot wait until he comes so I can understand and be a whole person as I see this Messiah. Thirsty to be loved. Five husbands indicate that she was definitely thirsty to be loved. Now, this is the person that's in the story, the Samaritan lady. Um, I think that she is somebody who is crying for relief. In the middle of the passage, Jesus is going to give a statement. And when he gives this statement, it is going to be a statement that gives her absolutely relief. It's going to give him an answer that provides relief for her soul. And what's interesting is if it provides relief for her soul, would it be the answer that the world needs to find relief in all of us? She's going to find it. What is that answer? Number three, the Samaritan woman's heart was changed when she is given a new location to worship. If you think about the entire passage, what's the entire passage talking about? The entire passage is talking about worship. They're hungry for God, both the Jews and also the Samaritans. They're hungry for God, but Jesus is going to say, we're going to change our place to worship. What happens with the Jews, they worship in Jerusalem. What happens with Samaritans, they worship in Gerizim. And Jesus says, I've got something new. Look at the passage. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. That statement right there is saying, Jesus, you have authority and you have something to say. And she's going to listen. And what does he say? Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you worship is Jerusalem. You see what's taking place? It's all about location. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time. If you look at the NASB, it says an hour, a specific hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or Jerusalem. They're still talking about location. You're not going to worship on the mountain or Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father where? There's a new location. In spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak 
to you am he. You see the entire conversation? Where do we worship? She was depressed. She was oppressed. She worshiped in Gerizim. People in Judah, depressed, oppressed, needing relief. They worshiped in Jerusalem. Jesus says, let's find a new place to worship. The new place to worship is going to be in our heart. Why? The hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship now, not in Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, but will worship in your spirit and will worship in his truth. What does that statement mean? Just want to try to explain that because it's a huge package of information. Like, what does this statement mean? I think what it means is I want my spirit to touch truth. That's what worship is. I want my spirit to touch truth, the deepest part of me to touch the truth. I want to go back to this list that was talking about relief. We said that my life feels out of control. When your life is feeling out of control, what is speaking? Your spirit is speaking. You are speaking. When your body goes to the grave, that spirit's still going to be alive, and it's going to be in heaven. It's going to be different, but you're feeling out of control. That's your spirit speaking. What does truth say? God says, your life is in my hands. You see how our spirit speaks, but then how God's truth interact? We say on our spirit, I can't measure up. God says, you don't need to measure up. I measured up and I died in your stead. You see our spirit? This is what I'm saying. I need relief. And God says, I want you to worship with truth, your spirit and truth, because if you do see it, that is when you'll become alive. I feel worthless, is what our spirits often say. God's truth says, I bought you with my blood. You are worth more than you absolutely think that you are. Our spirit often speaks to us, I feel like it's all up to me. God says, in his truth, it has never been up to you. It's all been up to me, and I've already done all the work for you. Our spirits often say, I I feel unloved. God's truth says, you idiot, I died for you. If I died for you, how could you feel unloved? You don't worship enough. You don't come with your spirit to church and connect it with my truth. Make life a consistent piece of worship that I feel unloved, but then bring truth to my spirit and find out that there's a God who died for you. Our spirits often say, I don't have enough faith. God says, I'm not controlled by your faith. I'm controlled by my desires. And my desires do not go up and down with your faith. Therefore, what I am is I'm patient. I'm loving. I'm kind. And I want to walk with you in the process of your faith. Our spirit says, I messed up. God's truth says, you're saved. Your spirit says, I'm not worthy. God says, but I am, and I've done it all for you. Spirits in our side says, I hope no one ever discovers the truth about me. You ever thought about that? All the things that it's skeleton in the closets that nobody knows. And God's truth says, nah, you're wrong. I know everything about you. And I still love you. Spirit says, I'm disqualified. God says, those people are the people that I like to use. I wish you would get over it. Because if you get over it, my spirit can live inside of you and joy will take over. Spirit is saying, I'm a fraud. God says, of course you're a fraud, but I'm a patient God. And I will love you, and you will be forgiven. Let me walk with you. 
Say, if people knew what I have done, they would reject me. God's truth says what? I know exactly what you've done, and I have never rejected you. You see how we can receive life in worship? And it's all about location. What this could also say is that many people have come to church for many years and have sung every single song and have never worshipped. Many people can come to church and leave your heart at home and walk into the building and do everything that is done, but you're never worshiping in the Spirit connected with His truth. How do you know if you're worshiping in Spirit and truth? It's a big statement. I want to worship in Spirit and truth because this is the revival that has taken place in this lady, and it needs to be the revival that's taken place in us because we need to consistently do it. How do I know that if I am worshiper, in spirit and truth. There's a couple pieces of indication that show that you're a worshiper of spirit and truth. Number five, worship in spirit and truth brings forth a spring of grace. A spring of grace. I was a logger for two years, and as I was a logger, I, um, it was before I got married, and I lived in a 15-foot trailer, and it was not self-contained. I didn't have a shower in the trailer, and I also did not have a toilet in the trailer, but I lived in the woods, so I was okay with it. And I also had a system. The way that I worked, I worked six days on and two days off. So for six days, I didn't shower. And then on my day off, I rented a motel. And then after I rented a motel, I got to shower. And boy, did it feel good. Now you might say, well, that's completely disgusting. But it's actually not disgusting. The reason why is because, I don't know if you guys know this, but if you um, drink lots of water and you sweat really, really hard, it actually gets rid of the stink. Believe it or not, all the water goes into your system and it comes out your pores and your pores, the impurity in your pores are all clean so you don't stink anymore. So by day one, day two, I didn't smell. My wife disagreed with me. She says that, you know, if you don't shower for six days, it kills every single sense in your nose and you forget how you smell. But, but I still think my theory is, is actually correct. But the point I want to make is after six days... A shower feels really, really good. After worship, what should you be showered with? After worship, what should you be showered with? This person was showered with something, and it was called grace. Let's look at the story, John 4, 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking to a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak to her? So the woman left her water pot, after she heard the comment of worship and spirit and truth, left her water pot and went to the city. Now remember what city she's walking into. She's walking in a city where she has a reputation. She's walking in a city where everybody has rejected her. She's walking into a city as a known, filthy, rotten sinner. She walks into the city, and what does she say? Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. She's screaming at the top of her lungs. Come, somebody has seen me. Somebody has seen my sin. Somebody has seen my filth. Somebody has seen my garbage. Somebody has seen exactly who I am. But there's something strange about her. The thing that was strange about her is that there was a smile on her face. There was a joy in her heart. There was a freedom in her life. 
She came, see somebody, I have seen, somebody has seen everything that I've ever done, and I am consumed with relief. I'm consumed with joy. She had no defense, no shame, no hiding, no running. She was a completely disaster. Yet her life was making the statement, I am completely loved, even though I am a complete disaster. Now what's interesting is that she walks the street with grace written all over her mind. We can preach about grace, but this is a picture of grace. As she's walking through the street with all this statement, a beautiful picture of grace, what do people do? Do they cast judgment on her? Do they throw stones at her? They've thrown stones at her her whole life. They've cast judgment on her her whole life. Look what the people do after she walks through the street. Number six, a spring of grace brings forth a spring of ministry. What happens is that she's walking free, knowing that she had found an answer, and the answer was grace. I am a piece of garbage, but still loved. I am a sinner, but still accepted. I am somebody that should not receive anything that I've been given, but I have been given everything. And as she's walking with that picture, people are looking at her. And as they are looking at her, they're starting to ask some questions. They're starting to observe her. Watch the passage. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's what? Testimony. Why did the people in the town believe in Jesus? The people in the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. What was her testimony? This is her testimony. It is written. Jesus told me everything I ever did. What's interesting in church is that um, there's a lot of training that takes place to be a strong evangelist. There's a lot of education that um, happens. I went through six years of seminary to be taught how to speak, when not to speak, how to work with people, how to interpret the Bible, how to read the Bible, all these things. A lot of training, which is very healthy and very good. My job is to train disciples here as well. Um, in a sense of, you've got to evangelize to the lost. You've got to give the gospel. We've got to present things. So there's a lot of training. There's a lot of structure. We're trying to pull out gifts. We're starting to pull out talents. We're trying to make people smart. We're trying to educate people. And a lot of people are very intimidated of giving people Jesus. And the reason why is because they don't know if they can do it right. This lady did it right. And what did she say? Jesus told me everything I had ever done. And her smile was on her face. People did not see her any longer. They saw God inside of her. Let's continue the passage. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now we're getting a system of spirit and truth. Follow me. 42. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. So what happens is that she walks in and says, I'm free. He told me everything I've ever done, and I'm still loved. The people are saying, we no longer believe because we've seen the amazing spirit of being set free. Now what do we do? We believe because we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. That last passage, her spirit came out, and truth was declared. What's the ministry of the church? It's to reach the lost for Christ. 
How do we reach the lost for Christ? It would be in the context of worship, in a sense of going to God with all our pain, with all our hurt, with all our spirit, and finding that amazing grace. And when you find the amazing grace, what are you going to walk out the door with? A smile. So what happens is grace is what the world needs. And they only see it when they have seen it in us. And in this story, we see it, that the lady saw it, and the people saw it in her, and responded to Jesus as a result. What did she look like? She looked like a lady who was fully known, yet fully loved. Fully guilty, yet fully forgiven. Fully shameful, yet fully, sh- uh, fully free. She was fully lost, and yet fully saved. That is the source of relief. If grace touches you, it will touch other people. But if grace has never touched you, it won't touch anybody else. So we can ask the question, well, how do I worship in spirit? If my, if my assignment is to worship in spirit and I've got to walk out the doors full of grace, we'll ask the question in, verse, uh, in point seven, how do I worship in spirit and truth? How do I walk out of here with complete grace in a sense of I worshiped and now I feel it? couple points on how to worship in spirit and truth, and these are only a couple. We could go on and on. We can have hundreds of these, but here's a couple of them. Bring your spirit, bring your guilt to touch his truth, to touch his grace. When we walk into church and you want to worship in spirit and truth, bring your guilt into the building and let it connect with his truth of grace. Bring your shame, bring your spirit, and hold on to his forgiveness. Let your hurt embrace his peace. Let your oppression meditate on his hope. Let your anger observe his cross. Let your loneliness hold on to his love. Let your depression view his heaven. And then look at the next part as positive areas. Let your joy just feed on his freedom. Let your excitement celebrate his glory. Let your passion Sing in his wonder. Let your energy rejoice in his strength. You come to church and worship in spirit, connecting it with truth, or do we just sing? These are the worshipers God seeks. Those who come with their spirit, desiring it to connect with truth. Number eight, worship with the best part of you, which is your spirit, in the best part of him, which is his truth. And we know the best part of us because when we die, our body goes into the ground and our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Our spirit is our personality, our spirit is our heart, our spirit is our love, and our spirit is our emotion. That's the best part of us. Let's ask the question, what is the best part of God? What is the best part of God? Now, he comes in a package. He comes in a creator a sustainer, comes with lots of different attributes. But what is the best part of God? The best part of God is his heart. We can mix that. It's his spirit. The best part of God is his heart. Where do you see God's heart? Where is God's heart displayed? In Ephesians, the angels long to see his heart but there was a day 
there was an hour where they got to see his heart. What hour was that? The hour that he went to the cross. The cross is a revelation of God's heart, of how much he loves you, how much he's connected with you, how much he wants to embrace you. It is the complete emotion and heart of God. That is the hour that Jesus was referring to. If you want to see God's heart, you've got to look at his cross. Many people in this world say, you know what, I don't believe in God. And the reason why I don't believe in God is because he never reveals himself. He never shows up. He's always in hiding, and I never get to see him. Therefore, I don't believe him. God will never show up in a Shekinah glory until the day he comes. I believe that with all my heart. God will never give you a revelation of himself until the time that he comes. And the reason why God will never give us that revelation is because if we see that a revelation, our eyes will remove from his cross. And if our eyes remove from his cross, our eyes would remove from his heart. And if our eyes remove from his heart, we'll never find relief. Our relief and our source of relief is in the heart of God. And our source to worship and meditate and bow down to is the cross of Christ. The true worshipers and the worshipers that God seeks is not on the mountain of Gerizim, is not in Jerusalem, and is not in Jefferson Baptist Church. The worshipers that God is seeking are those who worship in their spirit and in truth. So the challenge would be, come to church to do that. Live your life to do that. Embrace God and do it. Father, we just thank you so much for this story of the Samaritan lady. God, she needed relief and she found it. And God, you have given her the source of relief as a tool to come and continually worship you, laying down at the foot of the cross. That's where we find it, God. Thank you, God, for that gift, and thank you for giving us the answer to relief. And I just pray that we all take advantage of it. Please, God, allow us to all take advantage of it. In Christ's name, amen.